somewhere between waking and sleeping, on our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 35 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a semi-regular podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave feedback. The artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from Mind Reader by Carrie Live, and that is available from magnitude.com. This podcast is also available on iTunes. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Night of the Nipperquins by Seymour Jacklin They didn't go gentle into that good night, and there was plenty of raving at the close of day, the whoops, the cheering of wedding guests, wishing the couple well upon their way. But there was no rage against the dying light, rather a low, bright half-moon dropped through felty clouds to illuminate their departure. After the taxi had borne them out of sight, and without the unifying force of the bride and groom to keep them together, the guests suddenly dispersed. Seamus and Maria nestled back into their seats and breathed, drawing towards each other again. On their wedding day, a couple plays an unrehearsed part to an audience of friends and relations, and it all seems a bit unreal. They have to meet their known selves again at the end of the day. "'Are you okay?' Seamus asked. "'Exhausted,' Maria sighed. They weren't quite alone, of course, but the taxi driver didn't seem to speak much English, and he was discreet, even diminutive. In fact, he was rather too small for the job. His feet barely reached the pedals and he had to practically stare through the steering wheel to see where they were going. Of course, neither of them noticed this as they sped along the moonlit lanes. Nor did they notice just how fast they were travelling or even, as they picked up speed, that the car wheels no longer touched the road. Instead of hedgerows, the tops of trees were soon speeding past the windows. Maria was the first to notice the change of view. Her mouth dropped open and her eyes widened. Seamus followed her gaze and saw, too, that the moon was bigger and closer, picking out the rolling tops of the clouds like icing on a cake. Suddenly they felt the fearful space between them and the ground, Seamus, surprised at how calm he was, leant towards the driver and asked, Um, is everything okay? The driver ignored him, but that was the moment that Seamus noticed how small he was, and what a curious animal face he had, brown with deep wrinkles radiating from an upturned button nose, rather suggesting themselves to be the whiskers of a mouse. It's just that, Seamus continued, He was about to say, We appear to be flying, 
when it occurred to him that he might be dreaming, or perhaps someone had spiked the punch. As a new husband, his next thought was for Maria, her safety, but she had her face pressed against the window, full of wonder like a child at a zoo. All that happened in the next moments happened more quickly than the time it will take to tell. A few clouds suddenly took on a harder aspect. Solid shapes, dark shadows, rocks, ravines, blots of lichen, luminous in the moonlight, horse-tailed waterfalls, all whisked by and did not slow as the hills rose up to meet them. They skimmed cliffs and scree gaspingly close, until suddenly the car clipped the edge of a crag and flew into a sickening spin, flinging them against the passenger doors on either side and pinning them there as it whirled through the air like a frisbee, until it jarred against a boulder that snagged the middle of the undercarriage so perfectly that the car continued to turn atop it like a spinning plate. It slowed and came to a rest, balanced perfectly in mid-air on a finger of stone, an unrealistic stunt in an improbable movie. Anyone would think the whole thing had been planned that way. Maybe it had. Seamus and Maria climbed out carefully and dropped to the ground, a little shaken, but increasingly filled with wonder. This was the strangest thing that had ever happened to them, outside of a dream. The magical sense of good fortune in meeting and marrying each other, though, was barely interrupted by the strange turn of events. In fact, it all seemed to fit. We should call the hotel, Seamus thought, but a puff of wind carrying the woody musk of heather brushed past him and stole the idea from his head. The moonlight highlighted their surroundings with supple, silver brush strokes. They found themselves on a crag that was embedded in the hillside and jutting out over the valley, like a sculpted form emerging from marble. They could feel the great depth falling away underneath them, from the edge of the crag down to a narrow path, a single silk thread lying along the valley floor. It was all very still. They could hear a sheep bleating a couple of miles away, and the scent of moss and heather radiated over them from the surrounding hills. What was that? said Maria suddenly. Seamus tried to find the words to say something light-hearted. He searched for a pun. His mind shuffled a deck of words in his head. I think that's what you'd call a wedding crasher, he declared. He knew it was lame, but if he'd waited for something better to say, he'd have missed the moment. Timing was everything when it came to puns. No, that noise, said Maria. Her hearing was slightly better than his, but the noise was getting louder. It sounded like a gaggle of children, chattering, laughing, singing snatches of song, interrupting each other. Drunk children, perhaps, somewhere away to the left, climbing up through the darkness towards them. The voices came very close, but a thick smudge of cloud drew in front of the moon, and while the slopes on the far side of the valley were greyly lit, there was true darkness behind and around them. Then they heard a sharp, Shh! and the voices stopped about ten yards away. Seamus and Maria felt forward in the dark with their eyes. They're a bit big, said one voice. How are they going to fit? Shh! Did you bring the strawberries? said another voice. Yes, said a third. They're good and soggy, but a bit small maybe. Then fire away, said the second voice. Moments later, Seamus felt something wet plop against his cheek and slide down the side of his face. He reflexively grabbed it away and found a cold little blob in his hand that smelled cloyingly of strawberry. 
Maria squealed as she found a couple in her hair, and they took a few more direct hits before Seamus squared himself up and faced the darkness. Hey, stop it! he shouted. The moon came out in full support just then. There was a burst of childish laughter. It came from a bundle of feathery shapes standing a few paces off. It was made up of six or seven creatures that could have been huge birds with extremely unkempt feathers sticking out at all angles, except they had heads and arms like people. Short people, waist-high to a human. The hail of squishy strawberries abated. One of the shapes detached itself from the bundle and came to stand in front of them. It moved with the unbalanced gait of a bird on thin legs. "'If we don't bless you with a strawberry shower, how can you be fruitful in the future?' it said. It spoke from a mouth, shaped like a human mouth, but its lips were yellow and beaky. Then, leaving no time for any questions, this spokes-thingy of the feathery watsits told the couple that they were late, and that they must come at once, for they were being fetched by the mountain king, who wished to see them in person to congratulate them on their union. Their strange escorts, they later learned, were known as Eglins. They more often throw burrs and bird droppings at innocent Sunday strollers in the hills. So if you ever come home from a ramble with things sticking to you, you can probably blame the Eglins. Only the Mountain King had the authority to call them to order and commission them to greet the newlyweds with a shower of fruit. The Eglins led them down the side of the crag and showed them where, underneath it, the rocks formed a tiny cave that passed through from one side of the base of the crag to the other. They had to squeeze through, but they emerged to find the hillside quite different from the way they'd seen it from the crag. On the other side there was a string of tiny lanterns leading along a contour and marking a path. A couple of the Eglins went in front, then came Seamus, one arm behind him, to clasp Maria's hand as she climbed after him. It was as well that they couldn't see much beyond the little orange dabs of light along the path, for the slope they were scrambling along was high, and close to several yawning drops they only felt as deeper pools of shadow beneath them. Soon they found that the rocks closed over their heads into a tunnel, winding downwards. The lanterns watched their way and seemed to show them exactly where to put their feet, for the floor of the tunnel was quite uneven. Their eyes had become used to the dim glow, so when they suddenly came out into a huge, brilliantly lit cave at the end of the tunnel, the light broke on them with all the brilliance of a sun. They staggered and held their arms over their faces until they could make out in resolving detail the shapes, shades and colours in the cavern before them. The cave was vastly galleried like a cathedral, its ceiling lost in light somewhere above them, and it was thronged with creatures of every element. Brown, green and grey imps and dwarves of every shade of earth, rocky cobbles and furtive piskies, blue and lime iridescent and scaly nymphs of water, crimson-horned fire-toads, bright orange fire-sprites springing up into the air like stray flames, and the fey people of the air and flowers darting on silver and golden wings. Towering over it all and stationed along the walls were huge ponderous angelic creatures with slowly beating wings. All these parted like skittles knocked aside, leaving a path in front of the couple, leading to the far wall of the cave, a sheer quartzite cliff face which held an alcove, in which sat a man. This figure was dressed in green, his arms and legs, too long for him, 
were carelessly arranged like a slumped marionette's. His face was middle-aged, melancholic, with a slightly scruffy beard clinging like grey-brown lichen to his chin. He unfolded himself as Seamus and Maria approached. Then he bowed with great decorum and spoke in a rich, unhurried voice that seemed much deeper than he had the chest for. "'I'm sorry to interrupt your honeymoon, Seamus and Maria,' he began. "'But I have unfinished business.' that it would be a great relief to settle before we celebrate your marriage with you, as we must. The couple stood quietly in front of him like scolded children. Although there was no threat in the Mountain King's voice, his eyes seemed too sad to answer, and he was imbued with the gravity of true majesty. You see, he said, looking at Maria, this man that you have married has nipperquin blood in him from ancient times. Even though he is for the most part immortal, what small trace he has has bound us to him and him to an inheritance. What? Seamus exclaimed. He let his voice show Maria that he had no idea what the mountain king was talking about. The king continued, This inheritance is due to him on the day he marries. That's the bequest. I've kept it for him and not given up hope that I might pass it on. Seamus, said Maria fondly, teasing him gently. You never told me about any Nipperquins. Who are they? I have no idea, said Seamus. So the king called out the Nipperquins to show themselves from the mass of guests gathered there. There was a movement like retiring breakers on a pebble beach as the Nipperquins stepped out from the crowd and streamed down the middle of the cavern towards the couple. They were wiry men and women, about shoulder high to the average human. Their clothes seemed to be made from patches of softened brown bark joined with enormous stitches. Many of them carried lengths of coarse rope in coils over their shoulders, and their belts were stuck with picks and cleats, mallets and chisels, tools for climbing and for working stone. Such were the Nipperquin folk. They lived in high inaccessible crags and unknown caves, working tirelessly, as architects of natural stone, their work is always mistaken for the long action of weather on geology, but it was the Nipperquins who raised up the Tors, from Bodmin to the highlands in Britain, who gave their knowledge to the people who built the Great Henges, of which Stonehenge is just one of many, by the way. From Ireland, perhaps, they first came, but spread throughout the world so far that their kind now do their best to shore up the passes of Kashmir, and anchor the outcrops of Utah. To tell the truth, the mountains would be an even more dangerous place without them and their perfect knowledge of the ways of stone, and how a great weight can be held in place by the smallest forces. I had no idea you existed, Seamus exclaimed. But Maria smiled to herself. She'd often wondered who she felt watching over them on the steep paths. You guys rock, said Seamus. Another terrible pun but the Nipperquins roared with laughter and slapped each other on the back. Oh, they like bad puns too, said Maria. That's where you get it from. Blame the Nipperquin blood. When they had recovered from their laughter, the king continued. About that inheritance. There is a crag. Where you landed tonight. Indeed, it has stood for a long, long time. It is dear to many mortals who visit it often, but also to Nipperquins. 
because it was built by your ancestor, the mighty Quinn. His line and all the rights, responsibilities and privileges of the Nipiquin builders now come down to you, Seamus. It's tenuous and the ties are very distant, but you are the one, and I think you're best for the job. I give you the crag of Fargalar, entire, its platform and cave down to its foundations are yours as far as the laws of this my kingdom and all my elemental subjects are concerned. You have another name for it in your world, of course, but we consider you the Keeper of Fargalar. Hail the Keeper of Fargalar, the Nipperquins chorused. And you, my dear, said the king, facing Maria again, have joined our family too. This Seamus's Nipperquin blood has served him well, for I see he has sought and found the most fey human I have ever set eyes on. It's hard to believe you're not from the flower people. But it is known that at a very tender age you heard a rumour that books give you wings. You wanted wings so much, but you came to want books even more. You practically gave your life to them. But tonight, your wish is granted. Suddenly, from between Maria's shoulder blades, a pair of wings unfurled. They embraced the air above her head, curving above her, almost to touch their tips together, edged with scalloping like a butterfly's wing. And they seemed to be cut from the pages of a great book, and covered with delicate writing. You may use them whenever you have need of them on this side of the cave of Fargalar, and in your own world you will carry them with you and know that they are there, said the king. And now... I call upon the barred owl to propose a toast. The onlookers parted to allow a great big owl from their midst. He strode out and stood between and slightly behind the couple. He spread his wings out behind them like a high priest giving a blessing, and began to declaim. Come all ye neath Fargalar, Tell the bees near and far, for a nipperquin keeper and his maid ascend with stroffling steps the ancient hedge of crag-walk tops of growlamoths rising to the moon. I call ye, come all ye, locus iste noctis iste, come by drill-rill from far galar, over the brankdales under the leaf-swale, by clue-clouds and dread-swangs, you braffle-dancers and berry-brangs. Come ye hierophants bedecked in heath-woven pendle-check, brooched at the neck, stones of hill-vale gloistering with autumn's flame, dripping like droplets from fine tivel chain. Break loose the hummock-lockets, leaking their lively trumping hockets, following where water down the slopes of charball. A toast, a toast to find you! Nonestically refined in a spile spew by champions of corkat grew, I say it is a fine brew! To drauk on high by the half-moon, in a butterwort cup, all twisted with sundew, this night when the hag of Crate Crag turns beautiful under the willows new. By barky tingmus, where lichens crust is sweeter than bread, we'll gather there, while sable seams of blackened sunbeams will light their way to the hearth of dreams. Soft ye now, the wind wathers, whirning whisks about these lovers, locus iste, Noctis iste, roots of mountains belay their twisting. Nipperquins all be solemn as Grolman, to the bride and groom, 
raise a cup and extol them. To the bride and groom, raise a cup and extol them. All the creatures roared. And then the festivities began, and they danced wildly all night as only Nipperquins know how to.